So I am um, basically going to try and give a summary of a full decade, uh, which is the story of my business. Um, so my business uh, is a Cambridge business. It was founded right here. Uh, it was originally called True Knowledge. Um, it was basically full-time, official founding date is September 2005. Uh, so it's actually well over 10 years ago now. Um, uh, the core tech, it started like a lot of Cambridge businesses with some core technology. So there was some deep tech around uh, natural language understanding. How do you understand natural language? How do you automatically answer questions? Um, there's multiple pivots. It changed what had the way it applied uh, its technology multiple times. This, this essentially is the way I'm going to be narrating the story of the business is the pivots. I'm going to explain what a pivot is later. It was VC-backed. Uh, Amazon bought it. Uh, and the punchline, this is, the, this, is the, this is like the 10 sentence summary of the talk. It was, it was bought by Amazon. Amazon in Cambridge is, is, is the startup that I founded. Uh, and the technology and team became uh, an integral part of uh, Alexa. Uh, I was part of the team. Uh, that, that designed, built, and launched it. Um, so who am I? As I just said, I founded the, founded the business. I was also the technical founder. I, I, I invented the core tech. Uh, and a very important point, I was a former attendee of these lectures. So 10 years ago, I was sitting in the audience uh, exactly as you are now, uh, deciding whether to found a business or not. Um, and I did. And I strongly recommend founding it. Founding a business, if, if you're thinking about it, it's worth trying. Um, so. I'm going to talk about the full history of the business. Uh, I, the business is still very much going, but I left two years ago. So I left after three and a half years after the acquisition. Uh, after 10 years of the business's history, the business was acquired seven years after it was founded. Um, I'm now a, a pretty active angel investor. I spent the last two years doing a lot of traveling, a lot of speaking, an awful lot of meeting of startups, helping startups. I've invested in just about 50, 50 startups now, which is, which is a large number. Uh, I did something like 500 startup meetings in 2017. Uh, a lot of that was with an incubator in Canada I worked for called the Creative Destruction Lab uh, that is, is very focused on machine learning. It had like 150 artificial intelligence startups going through it last year. Um, so I'm very, 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 very immersed in the startup world in AI, AI and machine learning startups in particular. Um, having said that, I don't want to do this long term. I want to go back to being an entrepreneur again. So, uh, I've, had, I've, had, I've had two years out, and I, I'm hopefully going to be a full-time entrepreneur again in the not-too-distant future. Um, so the vision for my company, uh, most companies start with a vision. Uh, mine was a world uh, where you could just ask computers uh, and control computers just by asking them like you would another person. So voice is like the natural interface. We all know how to use it. We all know how to speak to people. Uh, we all know how to ask questions, get information by asking other people. Uh, but when you go to a computer, you have to like, you know, type in keywords and remember commands and navigate menus. Uh, you know, this can't be this can't be the, the, the right way. So, you know, that was the original vision. That vision has stayed remarkably consistent. Uh, it's still the vision of the business. Um, but you know, at the time we were founding it, there was a bit. There was a, what was really really hot was search, internet search. Uh, so the vision, as applied to search, was about is, was about a very very large part of that, which is question answering, seeking information. How do you ask questions? You know, 10 blue links, Google was really, really hot. Google was one of the most valuable companies. But, you know, the, the big user interface problem with Google is you get these 10 blue links, you have to guess keywords, it doesn't really understand what you're asking. Um, so, you know, the, the BHAG, if you forgive the business jargon, the big, hairy, audacious goal for the business was answering any question in any language in one second or less. How do you, how do you, how do you give information straight back um, 
just immediately, if it's online, without having to browse lots of links to, to, and reading documents to figure it out. Uh, and, you know, I say this is the vision for the business. I, I want to pan out this isn't my invention, this vision. This vision has been around for decades. And we know it's been around for decades in science fiction. So, you know, people that, people that imagine the future, imagine what computers are like in the future, have known that this is the best user interface for computers for, for many decades. Uh, and the reason why computers don't work like that is simply because it's technically extremely difficult. Um, so, you know, these are my favorite uh, science fiction computers. Uh, three of them come from Blake 7, which uh, most of you are probably too, too young to remember. But, um, but the Star Trek computer is obviously one of, the, one of the more famous ones, and there's obviously lots of versions of the Star Trek computer. Um, but, yeah, it's the, it's the killer user interface to use a computer. You just ask, and it understands. So, you know, the founding thing of the business is, is I'm not, this isn't a technology talk. This is the one technology slide, I promise. Um, but, you know, in, in our opinion, there are six things, six difficult technology problems you need to solve in order to create this Star Trek computer experience. Uh, so one is representing knowledge in a way that computers can understand. So this is the big, big gaps in AI right now and forever is that the documents are not really understood by a computer. You can statistically search them for keywords. There are sort of machine learning type things that you can sort of do with documents now. But the, that sort of deep understanding, that magical thing that happens when you read a page of text and you understand the world in a way that you didn't before you started reading that page of text is still something computers can't do. Um, so, you know, how do you represent the knowledge of the world in a way that computers can understand? That's one problem. The other one is, is understanding the question, understanding the command. You know, when somebody says do this or do that or asks a question, uh, we have, we've got examples of questions where there are literally millions, and I'm not, this isn't an exaggeration, literally millions of ways of phrasing a single question. You effortlessly understand all those different ways of asking the same question. Uh, for a computer, it's, it's, it's very, very difficult. Uh, common sense knowledge, there's all sorts of facts that we rely on to understand the world, to understand language. Computers don't understand them. Uh, inference, we quite often reason to an answer. Um, you know, we don't you know, we answer a question, we think about it, oh yes, and we, we, you know, we draw from things that we know to answer. Computers don't generally do that either. That's also extremely difficult. Um, and at the end of it, to answer it, you have to actually be able to speak back if you're a computer like the Star Trek computer. Uh, and the final thing is, is the sound, the, the hearing of the sound, turning the sound into text for a computer, understanding the sound, and also generating the sound when you're speaking back as well. So these, these technologies are, are called speech recognition and synthesis. Um, so, you know, arrogantly, we set out to solve all of those except the last two. Uh, we, used, we used other parties for the last two. Uh, and that was the sort of core tech, the core tech that we started the business with. Um, so, you know, the, the, the technology was actually developed quite a long time before the uh, company was founded. Um, but the, the dot-com crash kind of put paid to me setting up the business uh, around the time when I had the core tech. So the, the, the tech was kind of, we, we, I, felt, I felt some patents, um, and then there was a few years of kind of gap uh, while the sort of tech market recovered. Um, the approach that we took uh, actually uh, was, was very, very eccentric uh, when I was kind of inventing it in the university library. Um, it was, uh, but it's actually now fairly mainstream. So, you know, Google has a technology called Knowledge Graph, which has got some similarities. Wolfram Alpha came out many years later. So the use of kind of representing structured data as knowledge and using it for question answering and using it for natural language understanding is now much more mainstream than it was when we started, and I like to think that we pioneered uh, the approach because uh, we, were, we were out with a production system many years before uh, the big companies started building their own versions. Um, financing, so every business needs money. If you're a tech company, you typically need quite a lot of money before you're profitable. Uh, you know, we, we, our story was a typical bootstrapped 
equity financed business. We started with a bit of a grant and uh, what's called friends and family money, uh, sometimes called friends and family and fool's money, which is where people that know you put a little bit of their savings in uh, just because they know you and they don't necessarily uh, know much about angel investing, but they're, they're willing to take a bet. Fortunately, my family and friends uh, did reasonably well. Um, you know, that got us, that got us my first two employees, it got us uh, a year of work and a crude demo. The government also chipped in 75,000 um, with a grant. Uh, that year of work got us a, a, a demo that got us an angel round. Uh, so we raised uh, 650,000 uh, pounds from angels uh, in 2007. That was good enough a year later to get a real venture capital round, which was two million pounds uh, from Octopus, uh, which, is, which is thriving in London, still, still very much going. Um, and you know we had many rounds that followed. So we were financed, we were never profitable, we were financed by venture capital the entire history up to acquisition. Um, and you know, very, uh, you know, a big part of the business was raising money, trying to hit milestones, raising more money, um, as a lot of startups are. So pivot, so I said that one of the themes of this talk is about pivots. So a pivot is where uh, you, you change your direction slightly. Uh, it's not often necessarily a massive change in direction, I think it's like a, a base basketball term, uh, basically where you're, you know, you 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 change direction, but you're still you're still using the strength that you have. So for us, you know, we started. The vision was completely consistent. The technology was was always uh, wowing people and, and and validated. But the way we applied it changed several times. And I'm going to talk about that in the talk. Um, so um, the four attempts. So the first the first thing we did. Uh, was we set out to build a consumer website, which was an insane thing to do with hindsight. Um, but um, you know, we thought let's, it, at the you know at the very least it would show the technology off. Uh, so trueknowledge.com, it was a terribly long domain name. Um, you know, you, you would go to it, you'd you'd ask questions, and if it didn't if it didn't answer the question, you'd get search results. So the idea was it was no better, it was never any worse experience than a search engine. But sometimes you got a direct answer. And in those days, search engines never produced direct answers. It was always ten blue links. Um, so, uh, you know, and this is what it looked like. It's incredibly geeky. It showed off the technology, um, and it would put a box at the top, and it was very much designed to show off the technology, but it was a, it was a terrible consumer experience. And, this is, you know, these are example questions that we, we kind of love because Google can, can do them. If you type in Is Madonna Single, it will give you all sorts of stuff about music. Um, and it still does, actually. Yeah, if you type in Is Madonna Single into Google right now, you get a list of Madonna Singles still, um, although they're improving slowly. Um, but you know, this is it. It would show the, show the knowledge. There would be an inference path. It would show. It would, it would, yeah, it was the most geeky thing you can imagine. Um, but you know, it was up and running. Um, what time is it at Google headquarters? We love that one because Google couldn't answer it. Uh, uh, and uh, Google still struggles with it a little bit. Although again, it's still imp it's improving slightly. But this also showed off the inference. You know, the lots and lots of facts to, that it used to reason to what the time was at Google was like. I mean, there was an inference path of like you know 30 steps uh, uh, to, to sort of get there. It was, it was it was it was really showed off the off the tech. Yeah. So this is the this is the this is the Google result at the time. Uh, lots of stuff about music. Uh, the time essay, life in the Googleplex photo essay. Obviously, it's got the keyword time and it's got the word Google headquarters. But of course, it's totally totally not relevant to the question. Um, the other thing you could do is you could add knowledge. So a big part of our story then is like you know sourcing the world's knowledge by users adding it, and we had this incredibly geeky multi-step, multi-step process to add knowledge that kind of actually kind of worked. We had many hundreds of thousands of, of facts added by people on the internet. Uh, we proved that that approach worked, um, but again, it was a uh, not the best user experience. 
Um, and yeah, this is the kind of press we got. You know, we got we got featured in TechCrunch. Uh, we got some people excited about the tech. Um, but you know, we never we never got any significant consumer traction. I guess we weren't trying very hard to do that. Actually, it was very much sort of showing what we could do, and we were competing directly with the search engines. So, uh, you know, with, with hindsight, it was somewhat of a of a of a long shot. Um, and you know, as you notice, the company completely lacked any any ability to build consumer consumer products. So, um, you know, one of the one of the phenomena that we faced is that people would nod and say it was cool. Uh, but what they wouldn't say is uh, how incredibly ugly it was. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a syndrome called ugly baby syndrome where basically if you have an ugly baby, never, nobody ever tells you that. Nobody ever gives you the feedback. And this, this happens with founders, you know. So people not, you know, they know, they know your heart, heart and soul is in the business. They, you don't, they don't generally give you the feedback about how ugly your, your product is or how your, ugly your website is. They should do, but they don't. Um, so, um, you know, we really sucked from a design point of view, and we didn't actually really develop those skills until many years later, not until, not until 2011. So, anyway, we then, um, we then pivoted. Um, we then decided, well, we, you know, we're not going to succeed as a consumer business, but maybe we can sell our technology, license our technology to the big search engines, and they can use it. Uh, so, we went from being a consumer, sort of consumer business, to uh, a platform business. Um, and, uh, you know, the, what we call big search. So the big search companies, uh, you know, Google being Yahoo in those days, uh, and potentially the foreign ones as well, Yandex and Baidu. Um, and um, the idea is that, that they would put a box at the top of the search results when we could answer, and they'd show their normal results uh, in all other circumstances. Um, and that's the kind of press we got for that. Uh, you know, we got some interest. We had a long engagements with the big search companies. One of the big search companies we were talking to for two years uh, uh, without ever closing a without ever closing a deal or being acquired, um, uh, but you know we had regular meetings. They were keeping monitoring us very closely. They were very interested. Um, so you know we didn't get a deal. One of the problems, to be fair, was was that search engines have very very high uh, latency requirements. The reason why Google succeeded in the search engine market is because they were faster than everybody else, and all the search engines know this now, and they have like this absurdly strict uh, speed requirements, and we were just that little bit too slow. Um, and there were ways around it, but they didn't then tap the full capabilities of our technology. Uh, there was also some uh, NIH. You know, we were, I, was, I was literally in Mountain View in Google telling people whose entire identity uh, was about search, uh, that we could do it better, that we had a completely different technology that was, that was a much better experience. And the pushback was you know, that, that a one-shot answer isn't even a good experience, which, they, by the way, they've completely changed their mind now about that. Um, that the approach was completely, completely philosophically wrong, all sorts of stuff like that. Which again, there's been lots of lots of change in the last ten years around that. The, the whole, the whole, you know, Google does give single shot answers whenever they can now. They do use structured knowledge now. Uh, there's been all sorts of changes since since I was having those conversations. Um, having said that, we did do some smaller deals. So, um, you know, this is the the startup Siri, uh, the one that got acquired by Apple. They actually used our tech. And there's a, some other smaller search engines that, uh, uh, that, also, that also used it. Uh, so we did some deals. We did validate the technology. We were still showing that we were, we were valuable. We just failed to, to do a really big deal with one of the big search engines. Um, so the next pivot um, was, well, you know, if we can't get our content into search engines by actually integrating into their product with a platform, maybe there's another way we can get our content into their product, which is to publish lots of web pages and have them index it. It's really it's not as good it's not as good as a, a 
uh, a customer experience, but it's a, it's a way that doesn't require their permission. Uh, and having had two years of, of talking to these companies uh, and, you know, and not getting very far, this was quite appealing. Um, so I'm not sure if you know what SEO stands for, but it's basically, it's basically a, a, a three-letter acronym way of saying you publish lots of stuff, hope the search engines index it, and hope they, they then send you traffic for free. Um, it's uh, it's you know, easier to do than doing a deal with a search engine, but you know, at the end of the day, you're, the, you're one of the 10 blue links rather than a box. So it's, it's somewhat of a compromise. So um, you know, to do this, uh, what we did uh, is we, we set our website up that any URL of the form, trueknowledge.com slash Q, this is a question, would call our platform with that question and then publish a web page with the answer, various links and things on it. So we essentially had an, an infinite, uh, literally an inf a website with an infinite number of questions on it, infinite number of pages on it, because uh, there was an infinite number of questions we could answer. Um, we'd, we'd, we'd point Google at millions of them. Uh, Google would come along and index it and send us traffic. Um, and um, this worked extremely well. Um, so there's a lot of black art, you know, because we were because we understood the space very well, we actually were pretty good at the black art. Um, and, um, you know, this is what the website looked like. Uh, sorry, this is what a Google search looked like um, around the time that we were doing this. And you'll notice for this particular search, we've not just got the top result in Google, we've somehow managed to get the top three results in Google. We were so good at it that Google gave us positions of one, two, and three in their search results. Uh, for, you know, if you asked what the population of Iran was in 2010, um, and if you clicked on one of those links, uh, you got a uh, version of our site. Um, uh, notice the URL is essentially the question. Um, and also notice that the, the website is still the same uh, bad consumer experience it was before, except this time we've made it even worse by overloading the page with ads as well. Um, so, you know, we were, we were, making, we were making money uh, from, from this traffic. Um, and we actually, we started to make some really really significant money uh, uh, at, at its peak. So, uh, you know, we had uh, exponential growth. We, were do, we did amazingly well for a very long period of time. And there's some very, very interesting effects from exponential growth. Um, so, you know, when we started, this is what our traffic looked like. This is the sort of standard Google Analytics dashboard. Uh, and you'll notice that we had this freak day uh, in the middle of June uh, 2009, where our traffic doubled. Uh, and there was a very good reason for that. Um, that Michael Jackson had just died. Uh, and lots of people were going to Google and typing, is Michael Jackson dead? And we had a page that was that question. Uh, the answer was wrong, uh, but, <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, we, had a, we, had, we doubled our traffic. So, you know, we, you know, we just felt, had this amazing day where we felt the servers were, 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 were melting. Notice that's like, you know, 5,000 people came to the site that day. Um, but, you know, when you have exponential growth, Strange things happen. You know, this is what the this is what that graph looked like just very shortly later, and it's still a still a big speak, but it's not quite as spectacular as it was. And this is what it looks like just a few weeks after that. And you'll notice that a typical day a few weeks after that was like a hundred thousand visitors. So that five thousand is now not even visible. It's like a it's like a it's less than a pixel on the graph. Uh, and you know, this continued and continued for months and months and months. You know, and this is what our this is what our graph looked like. You know, later in two thousand and ten where we were getting you know, 3.8 million one month and 4.4 million the next month and 5.2 million the next month. Um, and you know, we, were able to have, uh, we were able to show investors decks like this, which is the classic hockey stick graph um, of you know, exponentially growing traffic. 
Uh, and this is what our ranking looked like on the right. So this is, this is, this is ranking. This is, our, this is the position in the world, all websites in the world, all languages. So we were in the top 5,000 websites in the world, all languages, all countries uh, at one point, And we were bigger than Sainsbury's uh, and bigger than some of the biggest, biggest UK companies uh, out there. Um, and, um, you know, we did some fun things during this period. Uh, one of the fun things we did is to, to motivate the team, we told the team that we would exponentially purchase larger and larger amounts of beer for them, uh, as long as the growth continued. Um, it wasn't really exponential. It was basically whenever we had a week where the traffic grew more than 10%, uh, we, would, we would buy a whole new load of beer that would be bigger than the previous load of beer we bought. Um, so one crate, then two crates, then three crates. And we'd stop at the Christmas party. So we'd worked out it wasn't going to be grains of rice on a chessboard type territory. The worst case scenario was 10 grand spent on beer or something. Um, and, um, and we very nearly did actually hit the maximum. You know. um, and um, you know, it, the result was the team was highly focused on growth. It was a, it was a really good visual aid uh, to focus the team on, on hitting this milestone every week. Um, uh, but we created so much beer that, that basically we would, we would have literally killed the team you know, this is, this is a, a photograph at one point during the process. I'm not even sure this was the end. Um, but, but, you know, we hit it basically every week. Um, and, um, uh, you know, we were still drinking it nine months later. Eventually, it was about to expire. We actually ended up just basically giving it away because we had so much. And the, the, the office looked like an off-license. Um, <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't the best environment for investors, but it was, uh, it, 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 was, it, was, it was a lot of fun. And fun is an important thing in startups. Um, so the other fun thing... And I was, it was almost spoiled by the introduction. Um, is uh, is that we um, uh, we decided we'd do some uh, fun PR, um, and one of the things that we thought would be a really cool thing for our technology to do um, is uh, is to be able to work out what the most boring day in history is. You know, we've got the technology had hundreds of millions of facts about everything you could think about. A lot of those related to dates. You know, we could, you know, we understood what that knowledge was. The nature of the technologies, we understood the knowledge. So, you know, maybe we could scan through all the dates in history and figure out which day was the most boring uh, based on the knowledge that we had about it in the knowledge base. Uh, so we did that, and we worked out that April the 11th, 1954 was the most boring day. Uh, actually, it was just the 20th century, but it was essentially history going back, going back 100, 100 and something years. Um, so we put out a press release announcing that we had calculated that April the 11th, 1954 was the most boring day. Uh, and that turned into this massively viral uh, news story. So we ended up with thousands and thousands and thousands of press mentions in hundreds of languages. Uh, a lot of them mentioning the company, a lot of them mentioning me, some of them copies of copies of copies that got further and further away from the truth. Um, but, you know, journalists loved it. This is, a, this is like a typical, uh, typical story. Um, you know, because they could go back to their newspaper archives and pull out their front page from the day, and they all agreed it was a particularly boring day. Uh, and they'd find out, they'd find, you know, really obscure things that did happen that day that we'd missed that just underline the fact, because they were just, you know, there was a general election in Belgium, for example. Um, and, you know, some, some footballer that nobody ever heard about died. And, uh, you know, all of this stuff that they discovered kind of just underlined the fact that, it, you know, we'd got it right. So... Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yes, yes, that's right. So there was a, there was a basically the one, we mentioned one person in the press release, Abdullah Attala, uh, who was basically probably the most notable person born on that day. Uh, and uh, and then I was, you know, when you're in the press, you then get invited to national radio. I was on national radio, 
uh, he was another invited guest on the show. So I actually, first, my first interaction with this guy, we didn't actually ask his permission before we put his name out in the press release. The first, first interaction with this guy was talking to him uh, you know, uh, on Radio 5 live in front of a couple of million people listening. Uh, he absolutely loved it. Um, uh, and uh, you know, he, he still tells people, I still get this story back you know, indirectly from you know, bizarre chains of acquaintances and things. Um, um, but anyway, he was, he was delighted. And um, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, various other journalists. Uh, there was at least one journalist who was born on that day as well, of course, who was just very keen to write about the story as well. Um, and anyway, so you know, lots and lots of press. Um, you know, uh, you, you get the idea. Uh, lots, of, lots of references to boringness and boredom associated with me. Um, and uh, the, other, the other thing is, you know, I, I'm absolutely sure um, that uh, I think we can claim quite safely to be the only tech company that made the speech bubble of page three of the sun. <laughs> so, which is, which I think is almost <laughs> guaranteed never to have happened, never, never to have happened before and will, will never happen again. So, um, you know, how did, you know, we were nominated for a PR industry award. Well, the other, the other thing is that the typical thing about press is that um, uh, generally once it's old, it doesn't get repeated. So, um, but, you know, every April the 11th since, more or less every April the 11th since, this is quite some years ago now, there's been more spontaneous press. Somebody's gone back and now talked about the anniversary, the third anniversary, or the, or the sorry, the 52nd anniversary, or whatever it is, of the most boring day in history. Um, and the other thing is that uh, for a long period afterwards, if you search for my name and did an image search, all the pictures associated with the articles um, would, would, uh, would, would, would appear and, you know, you've got pages and pages of boring people. It doesn't, it's not true anymore. Uh, it's slowly whittled away. Um, but, but for 18 months or so, that was, that was the experience you got. So, um, you know, how did, how, did the, how did the SEO pivot work out? Um, remarkably, not too well. Um, you know, we went to lots of venture capitalists uh, with this kind of hockey stick graphs, and uh, nobody had really told us that venture capitalists weren't very interested in SEO anymore. They, they were, you know, it was passe, it's too reliant on Google, not, 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 a, not a basis to build your business. Uh, so we, we didn't raise the, the big financing round um, uh, that we hoped for. Uh, and worse than that, uh, they were right. Um, uh, in February 2011, Google changed their algorithm. Uh, and overnight, we lost uh, about half the traffic. We still had millions of visitors per month, but we, it, was, it was a bit of a blow uh, to us getting to profitability from the, from the advertising. Um, so we never quite made it to cash flow positive. You know, we still had millions of visitors, but it, this clearly wasn't the way that we were going to become profitable and, and, and um, you know, move forward. So you know, we had to do another pivot. Uh, and the, the, the big pivot that we did um, uh, was the pivot to a product called Eevee, which is what we changed the name to uh, when, when it was successful. Uh, and that was to build our own branded mobile app. So to go back to our original idea about producing a consumer brand, um, make a mobile experience based on our technology. Um, uh, you know, it was initially uh, what we call conversational search. It was about, uh, it was about information. Uh, but we, we, we wanted to rapidly... Um, we rapidly expanded that to actions as well. So you could, you could do commands, you could, you could ask for things to be done. And the technology works just as well, understanding questions as it does commands. So we expanded the technology to do that as well. Um, and you know, we needed, uh, this was a, you know, the, other, the other pivots we did, were, there was a little bit of narrative policy in, in the way I said they were pivot. There were changes of emphasis rather than we're dropping everything and moving forward. This was a, this was a big one. This was, you know, we're, gonna, we're gonna bet the business on this. We're gonna stop doing everything else. 
because um, we were betting the business on it, we had to actually change the team a bit. We didn't have those user experience skills, those consumer product skills that we needed. You know, we had, we had web developers, we didn't have mobile developers. Um, you know, so we had to make some team changes. There was, a, there was a small number of redundancies. We had to bring in uh, additional talent. Um, and um, you know, this was, this was, this was a, a big bet. Um, so the timeline was we committed to this in early 2011. Um, we had a funding milestone. Our, our investors were very patient with us, but you know, they, were, they were very, very keen that this pivot would work. Uh, so they had, a big, they had a big financing milestone that was depending on, depending on us hitting milestones with the product. Um, which we did hit. Uh, we put the company in lockdown uh, for some months where basically everybody, you know, we were providing breakfast for people. We were, you know, we, we told them we would do their laundry for them if they wanted. They never took us up on that. Um, but, you know, there were people doing all, pulling all-nighters to kind of hit this product milestone. Um, and, we, you know, we hit the milestone. Um, Apple launched Siri in October 2011, so this was like some time later. And that, you know, normally when literally the world's biggest company uh, launches a product that's competing with you, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a problem. Uh, for us, actually, it was hugely helpful because they launched in October, we launched in January, so we were then positioned as their, you know, everybody was figuring out how do you compete with Siri, you know, how, do, how, do we, how do we create our version of Siri, and, and you know, we, were, we kind of launched into that and was positioned as Apple's technology competitor, you know, most credible competitor, even though we were a tiny startup and they were literally the world's biggest company. Um, so, uh, you know, we had tons of interest. This, uh, by the way, is the launch video. The EV app, I, norm I have given versions of this talk in the past where I've demoed EV at this point. Unfortunately, the app doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but I can show you the, um, the launch video just so you get a, just so you get a feel. Um...
So as you can see, we solved our uh, user experience skills. Um, and you know, there was a lot of, lot of content, a lot of uh, functionality there that nobody else could do uh, that compared very favorably to everything that was out there. So, uh, so you know, what was the result? Uh, the result was success. Um, we, uh, we were number, literally number one in the App Store when we launched. Um, so, uh, which not many businesses can claim, claim to ever get to. Uh, so out of all the, all the many, many hundreds of thousands of millions of apps, we were, we were the number one downloaded app for a period. We had millions of downloads. Um, uh, we had lots of very, very positive press comparing us with, with, with Apple's offering, um, showing how much better we were in, in all sorts of ways. Um, uh, and you know, the Britishness helped as well with the, with the British press, of course. So this is the kind of press we were getting uh, soon afterwards. Uh, 2012 was a very busy year. Um, so, um, so you know, we had more than a million downloads very quickly. Uh, number one in the App Store for a while. And we basically had 40 really big companies or multiple divisions of the same company in some, some, okay, some instances uh, you know, approaching us, wanting to talk to us, wanting to figure out how they could use our tech, what, how they could work with us. Uh, so 2012 was just a blur of, of very important, very big meetings with all sorts of people. Um, you know, up until that point, I'd been, this was seven years, I'd been the CEO of the business. Uh, at that point, uh, with that success behind us and having found our successful product, this was the time for me to get a, uh, a uh, much more experienced CEO in, uh, Silicon Valley uh, CEO, Barak Berkowitz. Um, you know, he joined uh, actually about, about six months before we were acquired. So it was, it was not a very long period with, with, with him at the realm, but it was an incredibly busy period. And he, he managed the, uh, that massive, uh, massive funnel of, of interest that we had. Uh, and um, you know, we changed the company name because uh, we had two brands at that point. We had this very successful uh, product that everybody was interested in, and the True Knowledge brand was kind of on the side, so we, we changed the name from True Knowledge to Eevee. It's the same company, we just renamed it. Um, and you know, at the end of the 2012, we had two acquisition offers and a big financing offer lined up. Uh, the other acquisition offer would have relocated half the team to Silicon Valley, uh, probably laid off the other half. Uh, Amazon wanted to invest uh, in Cambridge, uh, build and grow the team here, have the team do largely what they were already doing, uh, invest and grow, grow on what we had. Um, the financing offer would have put off, uh, the financing offer was, was tempting, um, um, but um, uh, we, you know, we decided to go, uh, go for the Amazon acquisition, and uh, with hindsight, that was absolutely the right decision. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, we got bought by Amazon. This is 2012, we didn't really announce it, it was kept very quiet, um, it did eventually leak. Um, and um, you know, this is the this is the Amazon office, uh, which was which was built in 2013 or so. The first Amazon office. This is here in Cambridge, um, uh, in Castle Park. Um, the team joined uh, this top secret, very very early top secret project within Amazon. Um, uh, I had a I had a senior product role. The team was basically heads down, applying the tech, building uh, building Alexa uh, and Amazon Echo. Um, this was, uh, so we were heads down doing that for like two years. Uh, it, you know, uh, we, we sort of soft launched the product eventually in late 2014 uh, in the US. Uh, and it was launched uh, much later in the UK in October 2016. Um, and you know, almost from the point we soft launched it, uh, it, was a, it was a big success as well. So uh, you know, this, is the, this is the press around the time we soft launched it took everybody by surprise. We were, we, it was a top secret project, we managed to keep it secret very effectively. 
uh, just kind of blew, blew people's minds because they've never seen anything like it. It's like a, a you know a screenless computer um, you can talk to across the room. Um, very good reviews. Um, you know, subsequently we've had uh, a more considered press. This is an article uh, that, that uh, Tim O'Reilly uh, wrote where he's put it in the same bucket as the Mac, the World Wide Web, and the iPhone as kind of game-changing consumer products, uh, which is about the most flattering thing uh, you can say, I think, is to have, have something you've worked on for, 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 for 10 years to, be, to put in those categories. Um, and, um, you know, following that, it's also been massively successful in terms of scale and numbers. Um, so this is, you know, we've, you know, it's now in 89 countries. Um, there's 5,000 staff. Uh, Amazon has 5,000 team members working on Alexa. Uh, it's been on the Super Bowl ads twice. Uh, you know, a lot of people in America regard the Super Bowl ad as the kind of height of, 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 of anything. But there's actually been two Amazon Super Bowl ads. Um, 25,000 external things, tens of millions, uh, Amazon is saying, were sold last year. Um, it's become very strategic as well. Google is now uh, trying very, very hard to catch up. They've produced a, an imitation product, Google Home. Um, there's lots of others trying. And just, just the quarterly results for Amazon, I had a quote from Jeff Bezos saying that, uh, that uh, the sales are massively successful and it's going to continue to double down even with 5,000 people working on it and all the investment uh, that's been done. So, so it, it's still... The story is still continuing, uh, and it's still growing, and it's you know it's it's a, it's a knockout success. Uh, oh, and and the Alexa app is number one in the App Store, which, if you think about it, is absolutely remarkable because to, to install the Alexa app, you need to actually buy a piece of hardware. It's not like a free app; you have to buy a piece of hardware, and that's the only reason why you'd ever do it. And somehow, the volume has been enough for it to reach number one, uh, just just in the last quarter. Um, and there is also now, uh, having with this massive investment, there is also now a second uh, big building right here in Cambridge. Uh, and you'll notice uh, there's a whole wall of echoes. By the way, this is an echo. You'll see the wall is actually decorated with thousands of echoes. Um, there is a, uh, a statue custom art on the top, which is half cyborg, half human holding an echo. I'm not sure if you can see it. This is next to the putting green that's in the, that's in the building. Um, yeah. Anyway, amazing. Um, um, so, yeah, uh, by the way, I've got one right here. I, I am going to, having built it up like that, this is probably going to be an anticlimax. How, how, how many people here have, uh, have know what this is? Okay, that's 100%. Uh, how many people have used one? Okay, that's about 70%. How many people own one? That's about 50%. Right, okay, so what I said about numbers, uh, I guess, is right. So this is actually maybe is a bit, bit crazy, maybe demoing, because you seem to all know what it is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch my microphone off because I have done demos in the past that have gone very badly wrong due to uh, speakers and things. Actually, no, I'm going to switch this microphone off, actually, if that's okay with the camera crew. I think it is. I asked them before. Um, so, can you still hear me? Okay. Okay, for the benefit of, of those that haven't seen it, uh, Alexa, what are you? I'm Alexa, and I'm designed around your voice. I can provide information, music, news, weather, and more. Alexa, will it rain tomorrow? It might rain in Cambridge tomorrow. There's a 63% chance. You can expect about two millimeters. Alexa, tell me a joke. What do you call a roost to being interrogated? Grilled chicken. 
<clears throat> so there's a difference between a joke and a good joke. By the way, for it, there was a period when I was actually responsible for all the jokes. <laughs> there, is now, there is now a very large team in Boston that does it, but um, there, was a, there was a period where that, that was, from my long list of responsibilities, that was one of them. Um, so you can blame me. Um, so it does, it does like simple, um, does simple factual questions as well. Uh, you know, Alexa, who founded Evie? Alexa, who founded Evie? Evie's founder is William Tunstall Alexa, where was he born? William Tunstall was born in London. So that shows it's more than just one shot. You know, I said he, and it knew uh, that refers to a hu male human being that was talked about recently. So, and yeah. Uh, Alexa, what is the factorial of 20? 20's factorial is 2 quintillion 432 quadrillion 902 trillion 8 billion 176 million 640 thousand. Okay, so, so that shows two things. That shows, uh, that shows that uh, she can do very, she's very good at mental arithmetic. Um, <laughs> it also shows that she knows the names of some very big numbers. Uh, Alexa, set a timer for five seconds. Five seconds, starting now. Okay, Alexa, stop. Uh, Alexa, play BBC Radio 4. So. BBC Radio 4. So summoning. Uh, uh, Alexa, stop. Uh, she shouldn't have told me from tune. Alexa, play BBC Radio 4. Here's Radio 4 FM. The BBC. So you can summon any radio station anywhere. Alexa, stop. Um, uh, and also music. So uh, there's, there's millions of, of tracks that you can access just instantly. So you can play any music just by asking. Alexa, play Call Me Maybe. Call Me Maybe by Kylie Rae Jepsen. Well, that, that could have been anything at all. Alexa, stop. Uh, Alexa, what is 73 kilograms in stone and pounds? 73 kilograms is 11 stone and 6.94 pounds. Uh, Alexa, what was the score in the Manchester United game? On Sunday, Manchester United lost to Newcastle Great. So 
it gives you some idea of, I'm, it sounds like most people knew what this, knew about this, the, the features anyway. That last question, of course, demonstrates a large amount of reasoning. So there's no fixed answer to that. You know, he has to know when Donald Trump was born, work out what period of time was 13 to 19 inclusive, look up all the presidents, figure out which presidents, uh, you know, were president of the U.S., uh, you know, with periods that overlap with that period of time that was a teenager and then generate an answer. So there was a long, uh, long chain of reasoning to answer that last one. And it's the sort of show-off question that I quite like to, like to use at the end. So I'm glad it worked. Um, so some final thoughts. Um, you know, so this is, you know, obviously some final thoughts on this. So, you know, one of, one of the things I think, is my mic back on? You can, you, you, actually maybe it's not. Um, so, one of, the, um, uh, one, of the, one of the final thoughts is that, uh, you know, big ambitions can carry you a long way. Uh, you know, the, the, our, our investors were very patient with us. Part of the reason why they were patient is because we had this enormous vision and we had, we had tech that clearly, you know, could help get there. So they were willing to fund us through multiple periods, uh, multiple attempts. Um, and the other, the other thing is that ideas often, it's very, very normal for ideas to need multiple iterations to succeed. It's very, very unusual for your first attempt at something to work. But every time you try something, you learn. It's very important that you learn. It's very important that you keep trying. Um, and, um, you know, uh, success has rewards. Um, but I, some rewards come even if you don't succeed. Uh, obviously, well, I was fortunate enough to, to eventually have succeeded. Uh, but the amount I learned in that period is absolutely enormous as well. So I don't, you know, I think even if I'd not succeeded, I wouldn't have regretted the time spent trying. Um, so, uh, you know, I think this is, a, this is very relevant for everybody here that's considering starting a business, is that you don't, you know, the, the downside, downside risk is not that great. The worst, worst thing that can happen is that you don't succeed and you spend a couple of years learning a lot from trying something that you would have spent, you know, in a job or doing something anyway. So I, I would encourage everybody that's thinking about, seriously thinking about starting a business to actually, to, to, to seriously jump in and try. See if you can. Um, and yeah, so the only true failure is not to have tried. Great, so questions? William, do you think we can ask Alexa if she enjoyed the talk? I'm not sure she was listening to the talk. In fact, I'm pretty sure she wasn't listening to the talk. Uh, so um, somebody told me that there is no such thing as just a joke. And um, I didn't raise my hand when you said, who owns an Alexa? And one of my uh, main concerns is security. Is Alexa always listening? Uh, no. So, uh, so the, this is, this is, there's two things that absolutely amaze me. Two things that I've learned about uh, Alexa uh, since leaving Amazon that kind of blow my mind. Um, one is the brand, uh, the fact that everybody ignores the Echo brand completely. It's Alexa. Everybody's in love with Alexa. That's the brand that's completely dominated. They go to Amazon, they buy an Amazon Echo, uh, they order it, Amazon Echo. You know, it comes, it's in a box that says Amazon Echo. And then they go, oh, yes, I've got two, e two Alexas at home. Uh, which, yes, that, I find that amazing. Uh, the other thing I find absolutely amazing is everybody, every intelligent, educated, or almost every intelligent, educated person out there thinks the device is listening to them the whole time. It isn't. Um, so when it's, when, it's, when it's in this mode here, it's not listening. It's, it's scanning for one word and one word only, which is the wake word. Uh, nothing's been recorded. Nothing's leaving the room. When you say, Alexa, 
the lights go on. At that point, my voice is now streaming to the cloud. Um, so, Sorry, I don't know that one. So, um, and you can review it. You can go into the Alexa app. You can see all the recordings that have come out of your house. That's 100% that's of what has left the house. You can delete them. You can delete all of them. You can review them. You can check there's no security. But at this point, nothing is leaving the, nothing's being recorded. Nothing's leaving the room. It's being buffered very slightly to scan for the wake word. That's it. So, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for letting me uh, knock that one on the head. We had that conversation last week. Yes. <laughs> so um, another question, um, yeah. which we didn't discuss last week. So um, Evie is um, Alexa's mom. Yeah, maybe we should switch her off, actually. So by the way, you can also, you can also press that button, which means she doesn't even listen for the wake word. Or her previous name. Uh, so so the, uh, as I said, the technology and team were acquired by Amazon. Uh, you know, we worked on that project. Uh, there, were, there were other people in Amazon working on that project too, uh, many others. There's now 5,000, according to Amazon, people working on that project. Uh, only a small number of them, only a small percentage of that number are in Cambridge working for EV. So, yes, yeah, so it's not... It's not Somewhere in we, the we gym, were, Paul. Sorry? Somewhere in the gym. Yeah, yeah, we, 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 we played... I'm very, very proud of the, the part that we played in the creation of it. Uh, you know, I... I I can see battles that I fought and won in the product. Uh, you know, there's a, obviously there was a huge amount of work on the tech uh, for, for Eevee that, 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 that you know, uh, you, you could, you know, you, you might think is part of it, uh, part of part of it. But uh, but yeah, there's there was lots of other there's lots of work after the acquisition, lots of other people involved as well. So I'm going to ask two facetious questions, okay. and then I'll go on to serious questions. Okay. Uh, the first one is, um, why was Evie a woman, or a woman's voice, or gender? You ask her she and her on the screen. Yep. And why is Alexa's voice a woman's voice as well? Uh, so um, so the, the, uh, for Evie, uh, we had a short list of two names. Uh, one of which was Evie, one of which was a male name. Uh, and I wanted the male name, Those of my colleagues wanted the female name. Uh, it came down to what domain name we could get. So the, okay. the ev.com ev was owned by a professional domain selling business uh, who were professionals, were charging a large amount of money for it, but it was a market rate for it. They were willing to sell it to us on a lease-to-buy arrangement where we could pay a, a relatively small amount per month and sort of over, over a long period of time, at any time, buy out the domain, have exclusive rights to it. The, the other name uh, was a family name uh, by somebody that had that family name, uh, that, that had a big emotional attachment to it, was deeply unprofessional, wanted to charge many millions of dollars for it. Um, and um, and uh, yeah, it wasn't possible to get that name, but it was possible to get ev.com. So I'll save my second facetious question for the end. Um, but I'm going to go to the serious questions, which is, yeah. what do you wish you knew back in 2005 when you were sitting in the, this, amongst this audience yeah. that uh, you didn't know back then, but that you know now? Oh, my goodness, everything. Um, so I've, got, I've had more than a decade of learning since then. Um, so three. Sorry? You're allowed three. So, uh, so as I said, uh, the, the importance of a good demo and the user experience. So I think uh, so that, those kind of UX, you know, I, in Amazon I was in the product management job family. You know, I worked with UX people, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, they had to put me in one job family. I was too, uh, this is a long story, but anyway. Uh, so, you know, I, I've, had, I've had 
experience now working with, with product managers uh, for many years in, in, you know, in an American company. Um, so everything I know about product and user experience and whatever I did not, definitely did not know in 2005, as you, as you will have seen from the screenshots. Um, and as I said, it took a very long time to learn that. So, so definitely that. Um, I think the importance of I think the importance of a demo as an early tech thing is, is, is critical as well. If you can blow people's minds with, with, with the tech, and I think I sort of did know that at the time, but, but it, 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 you know, I, I, I doubly know it now. Um, and yeah, I mean, everything I've, learned about, everything I've learned about startups and business since, which I, I don't think I can summarize that to a single thing, I'm afraid. Great. Um, so you mentioned um, um, that the tech was developed before the business was funded. Uh, Sorry? You mentioned that the tech yeah. was developed before yeah. the business was founded. Um, there are two schools of thought, and it's about the IP policy and any advice you can give to, uh, people in the audience. Uh, some people like to, like to go stealth mode and not uh, file for patents because they're worried about uh, getting information out there, and others who file patents. Any personal preference? I am very strongly in the latter camp. Okay. I think, I think, uh, I think patents are important. I, I agree there's a division on opinion here, but, but people don't generally, big companies don't generally go to the patents, uh, other people's patents and copy them. Uh, in fact, they're generally told not to even look at other people's patents if they're in the US, because there are all sorts of legal consequences for doing that. Um, also, you know, to make a successful business, you need a lot more than the patent. But the patent uh, is very useful in all sorts of ways. The, the patent won't, won't make the business succeed, but it does help the business in all sorts of ways. It helps with, with financing. It shows you've got something hard and valuable, potentially valuable, along with the business. It shows that you've got some unique technology, if you get it, to some extent. Uh, also, if you're ever in an acquisition discussion, it helps with the internal narrative inside the acquirer. Uh, quite, quite often, the internal uh, discussion uh, for the acquirer is, do we build this or do we buy this startup? Do we just build this ourselves or do we buy a startup? If, if they've got a sort of stack of patents, uh, that's actually very helpful for the buy argument inside the big company uh, because not only have they got to build it, they've also got to kind of navigate around uh, the IP. Uh, well, if they buy it, they get the IP. Um, so so I, I think patents are important. Uh, not everybody follows that school of thought, but I'm, I'm firmly in that school of thought. I agree with you. Okay. I hope everybody else heard it here. So. Um, I wanted to talk to you about your financing um, um, history for uh, EV and True Knowledge. So um, really glad that uh, you're still friends with your friends and family, and that went well. Um, it's a big risk here. Um, I wanted to know how you found your first angel investment. So how did you come across the first oh. angels who'd invest? How difficult was it? Oh, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. Um, so let me see. Um, I. Uh, I think I pitched uh, to a, this is a long time ago now, I think I pitched to an angel group in Oxford uh, and I got a couple of people who wanted to invest a little bit from that Oxford group, uh, but one of the people there was, uh, so there was a, the, the precursor to Octopus uh, Ventures uh, was a, a business called Catalyst Ventures, which was acquired by Octopus Investments and became Octopus Ventures, this is a long story. One of the people there uh, learned about my business from that pitch. Uh, so they were kind of uh, an angel group that kind of, a very organized angel group that kind of did the investment collectively. Um, and they were the ones that gave, that, that did that 650K round. Uh, and then I was luck we were fortunate they got acquired 
uh, by a bigger investment group that was then able to follow on with a multi-million pound round, which is how the, the Series A happened. Um, so yeah, so that, that's, that's eventually what happened, but there was a lot of pitching and a lot of frustration uh, uh, around that, uh, but we got there eventually. So any advice you want to give people in the room about how to approach your first angel round? Yeah, well, I now know a lot more about that than I did because I've, 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 I've participated as an angel in, in almost 50, uh, 50 deals. Uh, and I've also so I've worked for the Creative Destruction Lab, so I've seen you know, 150 early stage tech startups in the last, just in the last year uh, going through there. Um, so yeah, my perspective now is very, very dominated by being the other side and seeing a lot more businesses. Um, uh, but yeah, you need, uh, you need some patience um, and uh, a good demo uh, and a very good story about, uh, it depends what the business is. Uh, if it's a tech business, you need to show that the tech is genuinely valuable uh, and you need to show how it can turn into a product that's, that's going to be successful. Um, and there's a lot of uncertainty, so I think you need to be honest about the uncertainty. Uh, startups are always very uncertain. Um, and uh, yeah, you need a good, ideally a good demo uh, and a good, uh, good presentation and a good story. So you very, very kindly um, explained uh, um, the various pivots and the ups and downs and the lack of uh, success with the VCs on the, um, after attempt number uh, um, three or four. Were you ever tempted to give up? No. Never? No. Okay. Uh, that's fire in the belly. That's I, great. I, there, was some, there were some periods that were very stressful. Um, um, uh, yeah, I mean that that uh, that that Google Panda uh, episode happened while we were closing our financing round. Fortunately, there was enough momentum to the round that it, it went through. But that was that was I remember that as being a particularly stressful few weeks. Um, so yeah, so there, was, there was some stressful periods, but I never never wanted to give up. That. When you were discussing attempt number four, you said you um, bet the company. I think yeah. you. So can you elaborate on that? So by bet the company, it means basically we're we're not hedging in any way. Uh, the, the company is, is, is betting. We're, we're changing the company to focus on EV. We're not doing everything else. If EV fails, the company fails. That's what betting the company means. So, so uh, if he's successful, the company's successful. If EV fails, the company fails. So it's not, there's, no, there's no second project which we could kind of, you know, we're trying to do on the side that might, that might, might be okay. It's like everything or nothing on this one project. So it's been a long journey from 2005 yeah. to 2012, seven years. How did you make sure you always had uh, the right team? Um, well, I'm not sure we always did, actually. Um, <laughs> so, so no, uh, that, I mean, that's one of the challenges of startups is, is, is people. Uh, you know, a very, very important part of, obviously, uh, every startup is having great people on the team. Uh, and, yeah, we, we, I... I personally made some excellent hires. I also made some disastrous hires. Uh, and I made some average hires. Uh, average hires are a problem as well. Um, so, um, so yeah, there were some various stresses around people as well, which I'm not going to elaborate. But there was also some, also, some, also some wonderful people that you know, joined very early, still there, actually still, still there now, um, who were sort of you know, a big part of the success of the business. Don't get enough credit. Um, so, yeah. That's great. So I think I'm going to now open it up to the floor for questions. And what I'd like you to do is uh, we're going to have two mics, one going up here and one there. When you ask a question, can you please introduce yourself? Just 
um, just your name and what you do, and then you can ask the question to William. And I'm going to start with you. Thank you. I, I'm Richard Parkins. I'm a more or less retired software engineer, and now I spend my time designing puzzles and coming to interesting talks. Um, my question is, how far is Alexa from being able to have what you would describe as a normal conversation with a person, and what needs to be added to make that possible? Uh, so the answer is a very long way. Uh, I'm not claiming uh, this technology is anywhere other than uh, just past the point where it's, an, it's good enough to get mass adoption. So when I talked about the Star Trek computer and those sci-fi sci computers, they are still way ahead of where uh, Alexa is. Um, and what's, what's, what we did, uh, you know, the things we're, I'm very, very proud of is we, we showed, that, you know, also all the technologies that you need to build that experience have been slowly progressing over decades. It's not something that sort of magically happened in the last two or three years. Speech recognition, for example, has been, the, you know, thousands of people working in that. It's, you know, I worked on that 20 years ago, briefly. Um, you know, what I'm proud of is that we proved that all of this technology, the state of the art of all this technology, plus some of the things that we invented, uh, could be productized into something that is good enough to get mass adoption to be used every day. You know, I have six. I have six echoes in my house. I've used them every day. I've been using them for years. Um, they're genuinely useful. There's mass adoption by, by tens of millions of people now. So, you know, we proved that it's crossed that point, but it's only just crossed that point. It only crossed that point a couple of years ago. There's another, another decade of, or more of, of improvement in this to come. So, Sorry. And I can't answer the question about how, because that's, if I could do that, uh, we'll be, I'll be accelerating things by a full decade. That's a good question. Um, hi, uh, my name's Dom. I'm a computational biology PhD. Um, when you were at Cambridge, uh, A, did you always kind of know you were going to go down the entrepreneurial route? And B, did you always know that it was going to be sort of in this natural language processing area, or did you actively search for a way to become entrepreneurial? Um, so I think, I think I did always know I was going to be entrepreneurial, actually. I was, I was interested in business when I was a teenager, um, startups and things when I was, a, when I was an early teenager. Um, the, there was some tech that I created uh, as a kind of crazy computer scientist um, that was very, uh, that was very sort of deep tech, but very niche. Uh, so uh, solving cryptic crossword puzzles, for example, or AI to solve cryptic crossword puzzles, which is which is really deep tech, um, but is uh, you know doesn't have a huge commercial application. Um, so I also I also created some software that made used AI to create weird and wonderful anagrams of anybody's name. Uh, you know, I got, some, I got some publicity about that because Dan Brown used it for the Da Vinci Code. So the anagrams in the Da Vinci Code came out of stuff that I, I wrote. Um, but you know, again, I think he paid $40 for the software. I think that was my, my contribution to the book was, was, was $40. Um, but um, so what I wanted to do was, was, was take that technical skills and apply it to something really big. And this was the biggest problem I could find. So. That's how I got into it. It's because it was the biggest, most exciting problem I could find. And I said there's a lot to be, lot to be said for that. Um, if you're tackling something really big uh, and you've got some, some way of tackling it, it's exciting, it motivates people, it gets people interested, it sustains you for a lot longer than if you're tackling something small. So thinking big and tackling something big is, 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 is why I went into the space. Uh, 
Hello. Hi. Uh, Ollie Hilborn. I'm a entrepreneur as well. Um, you said right at the beginning that you, you want to get back into being an entrepreneur, uh, and you just said that, that this is the biggest um, question, problem you could find. So what questions are you thinking about now? What questions are you looking to solve next? So, <laughs> so I, I've got some ideas, like a lot of entrepreneurs, but I, they're too, easy to talk to, uh, too early to talk about publicly, I think. Uh, so, um, but, uh, but yeah, that, I still, I'm still excited by the space. I still think it's exciting, but it's, it's obviously a space that I've spent 10 years in. So it's not necessarily the space that I want to be in for another 10 years or more. Sorry, just to follow up on the previous question. Uh, I'm William Aridi, I'm also an entrepreneur. Um, my question is, what drives you back to become an entrepreneur? And if you were to go back to take the same journey, uh, would you aim at being acquired again? Or would you aim at becoming an independent entity? Or what, what's the motive and what's the end point? Um, so uh, second time, I think, is uh, I, obviously the um, so I might get acquired again, um, but the, the financial attractions of getting acquired are, 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 are much, there's a lower bar. So you know, I, ma I made some money from the first acquisition. Uh, you know, I don't need to work again. So I don't, I don't, need, I don't need that. You know, the typical sort of medium-sized acquisition isn't a very, wouldn't be very exciting financially, but it might be the right path for the business. I think you know, acquisition isn't, about, isn't, isn't just about the economics. It's also about whether it's the right step for the business. You know, the result of... Um, the result of Evie being acquired is, is you know, Alexa and, and Echo, uh, which is like, you know, the, one of, you know the, as we talked about, is one of the hottest consumer products in the last couple of years. So, you know, independent of uh, the trajectory for the business, uh, a lot of good came out of that. Uh, you know, Amazon in Cambridge is, is now employing many, many hundreds of scientists and engineers. It's a, you know, it's a much bigger, when we were acquired, we were about 30 people. It's now... You know, I think I think with vacancies, it's getting on for a thousand. Um, so um, you know, so I think acquisition is definitely the right right decision for a lot of startups, um, and uh, independence may be the right decision as well. It, it very much depends on the circumstances. So I, I can't prejudge that with my next business. Hi. Um, firstly, thank you so much, William, for an absolutely most well honest. Uh, journey um, and it was very interesting. There's a few questions, but I think I'm going to focus just on the first one. Um, just in the process of uh, talking of patents, we're trying, I, I'm part of a startup in tech and trying to register patents, and I'm thinking, oh my god, it's really expensive. Um, and then, which countries do you start with? Okay, so this is a good question for a patent lawyer. You don't, you don't need to start with multiple countries at the, right at the start. Uh, you can file very cheaply at the start and then choose your, where you file internationally a year later. So you eventually have to make that decision, but you can, um, you know, if you're starting your business, you've got a year's grace before the, the real costs start, start racking up. Um, but this is a good question for a, a, a patent lawyer. Um, I, I think, you know, very briefly, I think, how widely you file internationally depends on how critical that patent is or how core it is to your business. If it's a side idea, it may not be worth the money. Maybe just the US and, uh, I mean, just the US. A lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of companies just file in the US, which is one of the best jurisdictions. But if it's like the core patent for your business, there might be a few other jurisdictions that it makes sense to file in. And if it's a world-changing, 
massively valuable piece of technology, you might want to you might want to file it everywhere. Uh, very very simply. Hi, I was wondering uh, what was some of the biggest technical challenges you faced with Evie and also how does Alexa understand different accents? Uh, so I'm not allowed to talk about anything technical to do with Alexa, unfortunately. It's all, it's all still covered by my confidentiality. Um, but uh, if I can talk generally about speech recognition. Uh, so accents are just, uh, just variations in the way. There's no, there's no, if you speak to a machine learning scientist, it's all about training data. Uh, you know, if you if you produce lots of train if you have lots of training data for you know Scottish people, uh, you know your speech recognition system is going to understand Scottish people better than if it doesn't. So it, it's not you know the industry generally about speech recognition. Anybody in the speech recognition field will tell you tell you that broadly speaking. Um, so what was the other question? Technical challenges within EV. Um, uh, well, that's a that's a subject for another one hour plus talk. Uh, I, I touched on the things we had to solve in the, on one slide. This was more about the business journey. Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, how do you understand natural language no matter how it's phrased? How do you represent the world's knowledge in machine readable form? How do you build a knowledge base of, you know, many hundreds of millions of facts? How do you represent the world's common sense knowledge? How do you reason with knowledge? Uh, I mean, some of this is published. There, is, uh, there was a paper I published in 2010 that covered a lot of the core tech. I've given tech presentations. Uh, on it, some of which are some of which are public. Um, so there's quite a lot out there about it, uh, but I can't answer that question briefly. So it's it's there's a huge amount to it. Hi, thanks. Uh, my name is David. I'm the uh, founder of DroidScript.org. It's an ed tech startup. Um, I'm, I'm looking for business partners, by the way, if you're interested, William. <laughs> uh, so with, it's a question about Alexa. Hopefully you can answer this. So we don't have to worry about the, um, the, her listening to us all the time because it's just the wake word she's listening for. But when we do speak to her, um, what about the data? Um, can you tell us what it's being used for? Are they profiling us and that sort of thing? Is it used for marketing? Right. Um, so that is definitely a question you should be asking Amazon, not me. I'm not here to representing Amazon. I left two years ago. Um, so uh, I can talk about Amazon culture a bit, I guess. So uh, one, of the, one of the dominant, genuine things about Amazon culture is, is what they call customer obsession, uh, sort of preserving customer trust. Everything starts with the customer works backwards. So abusing data collected from customers in any way that was negative for customers would be, would be very taboo inside the business. That's what I can really say. Um, I don't know what, what Amazon says publicly about the data other than you control it. As I said, you can go into the app, you can look at it, you can delete. Um, you know, it's, 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 I know from, from being inside Amazon that there's the, the, the amount of security around personal data is absolutely crazy. It's actually very difficult to do things with personal data inside Amazon if you want to. Um, they're very, very careful to make it secure and to not breach, not breach trust, and I don't think I could say much more than that.
So, uh, hi, I'm Chris. I'm also an entrepreneur. So, um, knowing what you know about Alexa, but uh, not another question on Alexa, and the fact that you're going to a new entrepreneurial space, what would you think about um, starting in a business that is heavily reliant on Alexa in an area that potentially might compete with Amazon, bearing in mind who owns the data on those conversations? Um, sorry, as a, as, a, as a... If you were starting again today... Would you get, would oh, you... I, I'm not sure I'd want, personally, I'm not sure I'd want to do that, uh, just because it's too close to what I did before. Uh, yeah, uh, so it's, uh, for someone else. Are you talking about strategically? Um, yeah, essentially. I, I think I need to know what it is. Uh, I, okay. But, um, but yeah, I think generally speaking, if you're 100% reliant on uh, another company for your startup, uh, and that company isn't necessarily going to like what you're doing, that's a problem, generally speaking. But without knowing what your startup is, so you uh, should be running for Google Home or something like that. Or well, they will, they will all be the well, same. Well, it sounds—it sounds like it's, it's. I don't know what your business is. So, but 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 it sounds like that would be the same problem. Um, Good evening. I have one question. Will this technology make us as humans still eager for learning, or is it going to be too? too easy for us to just ask in future. So will people be smarter from, by using this technology or not? I think so. I think, uh, I think if you look at, I mean, this is gonna, I'm going to give you a really grand answer now. If you look at history going back thousands of years, all the inventions that have made access to knowledge easier have helped us. Uh, you know, going right back to the writing, printing press, okay. you know, books, the internet. I don't think. I don't think anybody claims that the better access to knowledge or better access to information or knowing things better handicaps us. I think. It's, I think that, that's. I think one of the one of the ways that we've improved dramatically is is, is a result of technologies like that. So so no. Hi, uh, it's Lyric. I'm a student at Cambridge and a entrepreneur. Um, question kind of similar to. Uh, something that Hansi asked you about, which was um, uh, the you bet the company on EV. So, how would you go about deciding whether a project you're pursuing, uh, an angle to your technology you're pursuing, should be a pivot to your company or a Skunk Works type project, just like project? Um. Uh, so, I guess. So, a Skunk Works side project, I guess, uh, you'd have to be pretty desperate to bet on that because. By definition, you don't know if it's going to be successful. You don't know. Um, you know, the, the, we, we, we bet the business on EV because it was the best idea we had, uh, and you know, we knew the technology worked. We'd been, we'd been thoroughly validated at that point, um, and it was a logic. It, you know, it's kind of what we wanted to always do in some ways. It was actually create our own consumer product, but you know, we had people close to the business that were quite negative about that. You know, it's quite high risk consumer products. It's you know, selling to businesses. Some people think is safer. Um, and we didn't have the skills. So, um, but when we decided to do it, we, we had to focus and get the skills. So we've got an overflow room, and yep. um, they've been watching it um, um, remotely, and I've got a question from the overflow sure. room. So this is not my question, so don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> um, what was the reaction of your employees when you announced the acquisition? Did they feel betrayed? Uh, hang on, sorry. How did you manage uh, the expectations? Um, so, um, 
the reaction definitely wasn't a feeling of being betrayed. Um, obviously, change, uh, big change is concerning. Um, I mean, that's a question that you should ask them. Uh, the acquisition, you know, they, they, they all did well from the acquisition. Um, um, and it was the right decision for the business. Um, so, you know, there was some change involved. There was a couple of people that left within the first 18 months after the acquisition. Uh, there was a couple of people that left on, on the acquisition, actually. Um, but the rest of the team, um, you know, seemed to thrive in Amazon. Uh, a, a chunk of them are still there. Um, you actually mentioned that in the presentation. Yeah. And I did say, don't shoot the messenger. I was just reading. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, it's good. Hi, I'm James. I'm a history student. Thank you very much for the talk. I was just wondering whether you could give us your thoughts broadly on Cambridge's trajectory as an innovation hub. Obviously, you've got Amazon and a number of big tech companies getting involved, and also a thriving startup scene. I was wondering what your kind of the key trends we should be looking at in Cambridge are from your perspective. Um, well, yes, it obviously is a thriving technology hub. Uh, there's a lot of very good businesses here. There's a lot of very good people here. There's a there's a very good university here. Um, uh, I, I'm, it's, got a, it's got a great future. I'm, I'm not sure. Are there any particular areas, AI, that we seem to be doing particularly well in? Or uh, Yeah, well, AI is obviously very hot. Yeah. It's obviously an area that I'm very interested in. Uh, Cambridge is a, as good a place as, as any for AI. Uh, but I see a lot of AI businesses in London as well. Obviously, I see a lot in Toronto and Canada because of, just because of my involvement over there. Um, so, so, yeah. Uh, that's definitely a, definitely a trend. Okay, applying AI, you know, startups, well, there's an awful lot of startups which are basically taking an old business and applying AI to it. Um, and uh, the, there's, there's many, many thousands of AI businesses, to, AI startups to come that are an existing business with AI, you know, applied to make it better. Uh, but there's also a lot of uh, sort of core AI, core, core tech startups as well. So. Hi, um, I'm a master student in um, engineering. I'm just wondering about um, when you are in a startup and you want to do a pivot under time pressure. So I was just wondering, like, when you pivot, you have to build a whole new technology stack and yeah. some different components you will not have expertise in. So how yeah. would you decide? Um, how how do you decide like um, which do you build in house, which do you um, rely on other companies and like work with other companies? Like, is there considerations you have? Especially um, in the time well, pressure. obviously, part of it is uh, time and cost. Uh, part of it is how easy it is to to, to sort of build versus buy. I mean, you, I think the, the answer to that question should should be quite obvious. Some of it is, you know, if there's an off-the-shelf component that, that does the job and is much quicker to implement than something else, then why not use it? Uh, I mean, you can replace it later with your own thing if you want. But if it's if it's quick to use, uh, you, you should probably always use it. Um, and and obviously, for your own core tech. You might want to actually devote your resources and focus, focus your resources on the piece of the stack that, that you know, you're innovating in. Uh, but I'd say without knowing the specifics, I, 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 can't, I don't think I could help more than that. I think it's common sense. You, you look at your options and you see what's best. And sometimes time pressure is, is part of it. Um, but, but usually if there's an off-the-shelf component that does the job that isn't core to your business, uh, why, would you, why would you not use it? So, um, William, I'm going to close with two facetious questions. Okay. I, I did warn you. The first one is, um, if you were sitting in the audience today, what question didn't we ask? What question do you wish we had asked you? 
Oh, that's, uh, that's, I'm not sure that's a facetious question. Um, I, I think if I really wanted, there was a point that I really wanted to communicate, I'd have put it in the talk. So, so I think by definition there was no questions that I wish it asked. Well, there, there, were, there might be questions that are answered by what was in the talk that, that could have been asked, but there's no point in asking those now because they're in the talk. So. <laughs> So it was a super facetious one. The next one is, you mentioned in your talk, two Super Bowls ads. Yeah. I've seen only one, the most recent one. Yeah. What was it all about? Oh, I'm not sure I can answer that. It's like American, uh, a lot of these Super Bowl ads, are in sort of the, first, the one before, two years before, whenever it was, uh, I had the faintest idea who the people were as well. They were kind of, yeah, I'm not sure I understood the... Oh, this is Alexa losing her voice. It was Alexa losing her voice and all kind of people uh, giving Alexa. So there was a plan B and all kind of different voices, including male voices in there. Yeah. So will Alexa have multiple voices? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't work there anymore. Um, I, think, I, think it's, I think it's unlikely. I think, uh, but I, 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 I have no opinion, no inside, inside knowledge. Well, I'd like to thank you uh, for an amazing uh, talk and for being so honest about the journey and uh, for uh, being so entertaining. Thank you, Alexa.